So this is the thing, it's one of these stories that sort of percolates through various retellings and tellings and just becomes kind of an accepted family story. It's not that my grand never talked about it because I was adamant I wanted to know, but she just never really gave away details or you could tell it wasn't something she was very comfortable talking about. For whatever reason, and I think I do actually believe a large part as well is that just through time the memories are distorted and you sometimes don't even know yourself, which is something I would I genuinely didn't believe until this happened to me. I didn't think that was possible. So I never knew my grandfather. I never knew him what it looked like. I never knew anything about him in any way. My dad didn't know his father, and the information that I had, even though my grand, my, my dad's mum is still alive, was very scant and a very, very slim picture. So there was a whole, a whole area of my family history, my life, my heritage, that I just didn't know about and didn't know really where I came from. When I was younger, it didn't bother me. It didn't. It never manifested in any way that that, that I felt a, a sort of longing to know or a, this hunger to know who he was. I never really had that. I think largely because it's a generation removed. My dad's not the kind of guy to chat about that kind of stuff anyway. So you never really knew if he felt that way. So as I got a bit older, I started asking questions of my dad and my my, my gran about this man and who he was and and what he'd done and, and where he'd been. And the kind of this story emerged that. For all, as far as we're aware, essentially left my gran when she fell pregnant with my dad in the 1950s in, in Glasgow. And obviously this is a time when to be pregnant at that age and, and to be a single mother was a really you know, a, a shameful thing and a very, very tough thing for anyone to go through. And I think that my gran, I think in a lot of ways, has really borne with her her whole life. And it was, I think it was, it was a real hardship for her. So we had, I had this image of this man who ran away and just abandoned his girlfriend and his future child and just vanished. Now, it sort of came to light when I was about 17, maybe, maybe a bit younger, 15, 16, 17, that he had written to the local paper in Glasgow, or in Paisley perhaps, where I was born and where we lived. It was a really short, kind of wee inch by inch piece of paper, a column in the, in the newspaper. This would have been in the early 90s, so I was very, very small when this happened, and my dad would have been in his 40s. It was seen by one of our members of our family and sort of shown to my dad that this man was looking for his long-lost son. And I believe they exchanged a letter or two and he revealed that he'd been unwell and hadn't had... Um, this is my conjecture, that he was reaching the end of his life, or so he thought, and wanted to reach out and get in touch with his son. My dad, in that stage of his life, didn't want anything to do with him, so the connection kind of fell away. 
my dad kept this piece of paper, which was crucial. So when I moved to London two and a half years ago, I said to my dad, look, do you mind if I, if I try and find him? And he said, no, 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 absolutely. But if you do find him, you know, let me know what happens. Let me know how you get on. So with his permission, I was like quite happy to go and sort of hunt for him. And my <laughs> flatmate and I at the time, I said, look, right, let's, let's do this. Let's go and find this guy. And so we have an address in Kentish Town, which is about this point, 20, 20 odd years old from the bottom of this, this newspaper clipping. And so we went to Kentish Town and we went to this address and we chapped on the door and there's no one in. I was like, right, bugger, what are we going to do? So we chapped on his neighbour's door and this guy came to the door and we were both quite slightly intimidated this young guy and we were like looking for this man, blah, blah. No idea what it looked like. And my dad didn't have any pictures either and neither did my gran, as far as we were aware. And he was really insistent that the neighbour couldn't be my relative or couldn't be in any way related to me. And we were really having a go, like, you know, we're just, why, what makes you say that, what makes you say this? And he was insistent, like, no, it can't be your grandfather. So we all felt this conspiracy, and I was like, well, what do you mean? He's like, well, he's Pakistani. I was like, oh, okay, well, if he'd led with that, we might have actually got somewhere. I'm like, fine, okay, cool, I understand. Right, cheers. <clears throat> so I was a bit disappointed, and we kind of went away, but I'd put letters through all the doors nearby saying, if you know anything about this man, I'm looking for him, any information about him would be gratefully received, i.e., if he's dead, just tell me. Because that's, that's basically what we what we assumed, because obviously given it, he was obviously would be quite old at this point. I basically put it to the back of my mind and didn't really think about it until last November. I went on a date with a journalist who, in the course of a conversation, he revealed that part of his job is to track people down and he's a sort of investigative journalist. I had this sort of flared up in the back of my head and I said, really? So how do you, tell me, tell me more, you know, how do you, how do you track people down? He said, oh, we use this, this software. And I was like, all right, great. And then at the end of the conversation, after he'd sort of told me all these stories, I was like, well, I'm actually, I'm actually looking for someone as it happens. And he was like, well, if you give me his last known address and his name, I can maybe help you out. So I did that. And he got in touch and said there was a chap living a few streets away from the address, same age, same name, too much of a coincidence to sort of, to really kind of let up. So I was like, right, okay, what do we do here? I was thrilled because it was a very exciting thing to go through, you know, to think, God, it could be alive and I could fill in this picture. And it was more just a, it was a real, like a real curiosity that drove me. It wasn't a sort of desire to, to reconnect or build family bridges and like that. It was 60 years ago, you know, but for me, it was just a, a real burning curiosity that I wanted to, to find this guy. So I wrote this letter to him and then I sent it. I didn't tell my parents, I didn't tell my dad, I didn't tell my grand that, that this new information had come into being. And I wrote to him and I said, look, I'm looking for a man in his early 80s. You know, this is his name, this is, this is his connection to me, this is who I am. If this is you reading this, I hope it's not a shock, but I'm your grandson. I would love to meet you and just to learn about your life and to really get to know you and just to understand where I've come from, basically. I was back home for, for three weeks at Christmas and so it totally faded from my mind. And I came back home. I arrived in the house, this actually reflects quite badly on me, but I arrived back home and I saw there was a, a pile of some mail there and on the top there was a handwritten letter. And the handwriting looked like my grand's. I thought, God, Chris, I just left her. Like, what, what could you possibly have to write to me about? She's been the whole Christmas with her. So I left it for 45 minutes while I unpacked my bag. And then hindsight it was really bad, but then I, I, so I finally got to the, the mail and I opened it. And the first line was like, uh, Dear David, it, it brought a tear to my eye to, to receive your letter. I'll relay to you the history of my life when I see you. It's had its ups and downs. It's basically very, it's very short letter on sort of journalist notepaper with a sort of the perforated top, only one side, 
and he basically said he'd love to meet me. So then obviously I was couldn't believe it and I ran through to my flatmate's room and I was like, look, look at this, look, he's written back, he's written back, he's alive, he's alive. And then at that point I thought to myself, bloody hell, what, what do I do now? Do I, do I tell my dad? Do I, do I tell my gran? What, what do I do? I don't, I don't, I don't know. So I phoned my brother and discussed it and we said, right, look, the, probably the best thing to do is to meet this guy, see what he's like, first of all, find out that it's actually him, get a sense of him and then work out what to do. Because, you know, for whatever reason, bringing someone that you don't know into your life and into your family's life is a quite big risk, so you don't, you don't obviously want to. So I felt that was the right thing to do. I felt like, right, I think that's the right kind of approach. I didn't feel any animosity towards him at all. I felt that there is no real connection for me to his life and his decisions and, and while it may or may not have caused other like my grandmother and my father pain and whatever degree although even my dad I don't think really has that because he was so he wasn't born he was so young that he never knew this man in a weird way actually the thing that I really wanted to know most was what he'd done with his life you know you want to know the kind of the, the story of your grandparents and what they've done where they've come from and the lives they've built So I wrote back, I suggested two dates, two weekends in about a fortnight's time from when I wrote the letter. I sent it back to him and I was really, you know, excited to reply. Three days later he wrote back to me and I was like, oh this is great, he's keen. And the first line was like, Dear David, uh, can't do 13th frost forecast, but 20th can do. And I was like, I had suggested meeting literally at the end of his road. So I was just like, my God, how old is this guy if he's going out because frost is forecast? So whatever. And so... I wrote back immediately said, I'll travel to you, do you suggest a place? That sounds great. On the morning of, I was so nervous and just but I was thinking of every single detail. I was like, right, if I am a stranger walking in someone's life, like what's what impression do I want to give off? Like and I kept thinking to myself, like, buddy, what if he thinks I'm like after money or something like that and also I don't know if he, if he had money or anything like that you don't, you don't know these details but you think to yourself like, I don't want him to think I'm some sort of you know so I, I really really like took care of how I dressed and I put on like a nice black trousers and black knitted roll neck my favourite brown tweed coat so then I was like right fine sorted on we go got on the tube and I was going up the escalator I remember vividly being struck by this thought of like what in the name of hell am I doing like I don't know this man he could be anyone like he is literally a stranger that I have just written to and claimed to be his grandson what is going on so anyway I arrived bang on we were supposed to meet at 10 o'clock in the morning and it was drizzling outside I stood in the corner of this road and I looked down and I couldn't see him anywhere and it was getting it was a bit drizzly so I thought right where is this guy and I clocked over the road that there was a bookshop, so I thought, right, I'll go into the bookshop and I'll basically hide, and then I can watch him arrive and I'll get a sense of him, and that'll give me some sort of a bit of comfort. And then as I sort of turned my body towards the road to head towards the bookshop, I just saw this old man standing outside this cafe waving at me. And obviously I just sort of froze and I looked at him and I thought, oh God, that's him. So I walked towards him and he had long, slick back white hair, sort of. Michael Heseltine-esque, like, swept back. On one hand, I was like, thank God I'm not going to go bald, which is my first reaction. But he also had a black knitted roll neck on and, like, black trousers and a green tweed coat that kind of went down to his legs and a walking stick. He came towards me and uh, he put his arms out and he was like, "Ah, oh, your family, your family, your family. 
which I thought was a bit intense. And I was like, hello, pleased to meet you, I'm dude. The really thing that struck me was he looked so much like my dad. So much like my dad, but just an older version. I didn't have any expectations. I just didn't know what I was going to expect. And there was this man who was sprightly and full of life and very charismatic. And he sort of ushered me into this cafe. And he, as soon as he opened the road, gestured to the guy behind the counter. He was like, two cappuccinos, please. And we just sat down. And it just at no point did it feel like... He was obviously a stranger, but in the same way that there wasn't a, an awkwardness or there wasn't a... I don't know how you'd explain it. There was there was a familiarity that was more than just someone you feel comfortable with that you meet for the first time. So you did feel like a kind of connection there, which was quite strange. And then basically he just launched into the story of his life and he'd lived this sort of very, very interesting life. He'd been a long-distance lorry driver primarily, but he'd also travelled every single year for 28 years to Goa in India. None of my family previously had like travelled any sort of distance or anywhere really, and this was like this was great news to me. This he's gone back and he told me about all these friends he had, and the thing that really astounded me was how much he'd travelled, and how much he'd seen the world, and how much he was in, in, in sort of invigorated by that. He then told me all about this kind of like this colourful history of his life where he'd basically had every other word out of his mouth was girlfriend this, and oh, I didn't like my girlfriend, and I was away with a girlfriend there, and I was just like. Clearly this man has lived with himself as the primary driver and it all. Um, and he told me that he had other children, all dotted across the country, two others in Glasgow, three in Bristol, with other women that he'd had relationships with. At no point did, was I emotional, or at no point did I feel in any way emotional, but the only point that really kind of really struck was he suddenly kind of, there was a natural lull in the conversation, and he just said, you know, your grandmother broke my heart. And obviously, I sort of paused, and I just was like, well, "What do you, what do you mean?" And he said, um, "Ah, she, she finished with me. She packed me in." And obviously, as far as I was aware, this man left her. And I said, "Jim, I, I know very, very little about you. I, I, I know the circumstances, but I don't know for your version of events." And then he was like, "We're all going really well, you know. And we were going to the cinema. We're going to the Mossy. Do you remember it, son?" And I said, "Well, not really, because it closed in 1968. But I know what you're talking about." And they were going to the pictures. And he knew my grandma was pregnant, and for all intents and purposes, that was the situation that they were dealing with. And he said she arrived, she got off the bus from Govan, and she walked towards him, and she just said, I'm finished with you, Jim. And she turned around and walked away, and I never saw her again. Now, before I actually met him, my gran phoned me, and she didn't know that I was meeting him. She knew I was looking for him in the same way that my dad did. And she'd actually, she would periodically kind of ask me the way she'd visit was, how are your inquiries going in Kentish Town? Basically, she then, for the first time ever, introduces this information that she had ended things with him. And truth be told, I just didn't believe it. Because I couldn't imagine a woman in the 1950s who would voluntarily choose to be a single mother, especially in a kind of very harsh, working-class Protestant community, you know, that would punish people for that socially, it really would. Because basically what happened in Scotland very, very often at that time, and as happened with my dad, is for most of the time when they're very young, they're, they are raised to believe their grandparents are their mum and dad, and that their mother is in fact their eldest sister. So there's like a whole horrible mythology around it that kind of tries to compensate for what was obviously then seen as a very shameful thing. In hindsight, I felt very guilty because I didn't believe her. 
And so then when I obviously met my grandfather and he relayed verbatim the exact same story of how they met outside this cinema and this picture house then and she said, I'm finished with you. I felt so bad because I hadn't I'd judged my gran or not given her the benefit of the doubt. But then also to think that like for whatever reason she left this man or she didn't want to marry him. And I remember I asked her subsequently, why did you do it, Grant? Like, why did you leave him? And the thing that, that I do believe is that she said she can't really, she can't really remember. Which on the one hand, I think to myself, like, that's a huge decision. How can you possibly not remember it, particularly when it has such visceral implications for the rest of your life? How can you, how can you not remember? And I said that to her, I was like, I don't, what do you mean you can't remember? Grant? Come on, like, think. But she said, no, she can't remember because she can't remember how she felt at the time. All she remembers is feeling that it wasn't right or that she didn't trust him or, or for whatever reason, and she, she, she chose not to, not to do it. So in the conversation with him in this cafe, he said that my great-grandparents, who I never knew, had a hand in it and they didn't want her to marry him. He told me that they were going to get a flat in a place outside Glasgow called um, Hellington. And he obviously then went on and detailed this, this like phenomenally like colourful life, with obviously as I said other kids, other women in other places. And the thing that really struck me, the thing that I really felt about this man who I'd never ever met before, was just that he lived his life primarily for himself. And that is obviously on the one hand like totally fine. And at the end of the day, like I can't begrudge him because if he didn't exist, I wouldn't exist. And if he didn't be, if, he, if these things hadn't happened, I wouldn't be here. One of the things I was really apprehensive about was if he'd be a bigot and if he'd be, like, really kind of proper old school and a bit racist and all sorts of other things. I think, like, being gay as well, I was just like, right, Christ, how are we going to... But I made the decision already that without concrete evidence that he wasn't, like, a bigot, I wasn't going to bring it up. And he hilariously was like, are you married, son? Are you married? And I was like, eh, no, no, I'm not. And I was like, a girlfriend? Like, no, 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 no girlfriends, no, no. And then eventually he was like, ah, you're better off without them, son. All my troubles have been caused by women all the way through the years. I mean, he kept telling me how he was a good-looking man when he was younger, and I thought, yeah, well, I'm sure you must have thought that, Jim. And just sort of, <laughs> it's that ridiculous moment where you feel like it's two kind of worlds colliding, and I don't know whether or not me just being like, no, and sort of trying to be as subtle as possible spelled it out for him, but I don't think he, don't think he picked up the hint. We chatted for about two and a half hours. This sounds ridiculous, but the whole way through it, he just seemed like like a pirate. That sounds mental, but he really like he just came across this man who just like had lived life to the absolute full. And he talked a lot about how he'd made mistakes and he'd built a life out of making mistakes, and he'd kind of. And that was the, that, I think that's the only moment that I felt was the only thing that I felt was slightly sinister in the sense that he was so comfortable with a ghost from his past just wandering into his life. And I said to him, I said, Jim, do you have other grandchildren? Like, are there others? And he said, well, I know that I'm aware of. I mean, I never knew you existed. And I was like, right, okay, great. Um, he asked a lot about my dad and how he was doing and, and how my my dad was. And I told him as much information as I thought would be like appropriate in terms of like what... Because I didn't obviously want, I'd rather have my dad tell him if he, if he wanted to. He never really asked about... He never really asked about my grand. The only... He just he, the only thing he said about my gran was that um, that she was a very good dancer and that she was always she was quite a big woman he said she was very tall big, quite a big woman and I was kind of like where are we going with this and we just sort of moved the conversation on 
I just remember looking at him and, and looking at his eyes and, and, and seeing my dad and seeing my, you know, so much of, like, myself in him as well, that you think it's a kind of tragic but also, like, a very nice story in the sense that this man's at the end of his life and has... That, that kind of answered the question for me of why is he so comfortable with it, I think, because he's at the end of his life and he's looking back over all these decisions he's made that's caused... Um, that has just caused a lot of things, and not in any way to judge him because that's not my place. But I think that what I really get the sense of is that he has kind of made peace with his own life. He hugged and said goodbye, and I said he said he'd see me in a few weeks. So I wrote to him immediately afterwards, and he wrote back to me and said, "Yeah, let's let's meet up." But he, a friend of his, wasn't very well in Kent, and he said he was going to go and visit him. And then I said, right, okay, so I'll wait a few weeks and write back to him. So I did, and I wrote back again, but he since hasn't yet replied. And so on the one hand, I'm like, well, I want to very much pursue this. And there could be, he could be away, he could be still staying with his friend who um, wasn't very well. But there is a real kind of like, I wonder if that was enough for him. I wonder if he sort of closed that chapter in his own mind and kind of... And in which case, like, I feel thrilled that I got the chance to meet him and the chance to actually to see this man and put a face to a name and to really get the chance to to look at him and, and colour in that picture of my life and then on the other hand I think to myself well it drives you on that curiosity because you want to know why someone doesn't reply to you you want to know why someone wouldn't respond so anyway I left him in the cafe and this is obviously before I, before I wrote to him and then immediately I phoned my dad and he said what is it I said I found well I found your dad and he went alright and I said, well, I actually just met him, actually. And he was like, well, what's he like? I said, he's a very nice man. I've got to, I've got, I've got to be honest, he's very nice. He's very very charismatic, very charming, and told him everything he'd said and told him all the stuff. And, and he was like, all right. And so my dad then said, well, I'd like to meet him too. And so this is the thing, that this is why the second meeting is so kind of pivotal to me, because I really want to build up a relationship with him to then get my dad the chance to meet him. And for anyone to meet their father I suppose it's a much much more significant thing than for someone to kind of out of curiosity find their grandfather because obviously while it's imbued with meaning for me it's much much more significant for my dad Fortunately, my gran is principally driven by nosiness, so when I told her, she was just like, what's he been up to, where's he been, blah, 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 what's he done, all these sort of things, and she was really, she took it so well, and she was just like, well, I'm really pleased that you found out what he's like, and, and I think the only thing that I think may have been sad from that is that I think it did cause her to then really question or think back on all the things in all the past and, and wonder why she made certain decisions and and why things panned out the way they, the way they have, but it's such a... I think what really struck me was the way, the vividness of his memory and the vividness of her memory and how alive it seemed for them when they were recounting them both to me separately. And to look at these two people who are now in their late 80s and it was just remarkable. The story just continues, you know, I, I still, I'm still waiting for that, that next letter, but at the end of the day, by sheer serendipity of having gone on a date with someone and through a conversation like I managed to track down like a very significant part of my family heritage and so that it's a regardless of even if he doesn't get back in touch which is a very real possibility and it's entirely you know the agency lies with him it is entirely fair that he might not want to go back down that lane and then it, but at the end of the day 
I got a chance to meet him. Hi, and many thanks for tuning in to another episode of Everyone Else, and to David for sharing his story. Since we recorded this episode at the start of the year, David is still waiting to hear from his grandfather and whether he and his dad might have an opportunity to meet up with him. We're more than halfway through this fourth series, and we don't ask you very often, but if you're enjoying it, please do go onto the iTunes app and give us a rating, a good one. It really does help to make a difference in all sorts of ways. If you've got a story that you'd like to share, or know someone that should, there's still time for it to feature in this current series of the podcast. Do get in touch on at Everyone Studio on Twitter, or if you go on Instagram, you can get in touch there on the same handle and also see photos of David and the newspaper clipping that led him to finding his grandfather. Or you can email us very simply on studio at everyoneelse.org. Many thanks from me, Eva Krisiak, and come back soon for more stories from everyone else. 